0: Welcome back to The Stacks, a podcast where we talk all things books and reading. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and I'm joined today by writer and scholar Dr. Damaris B. Hill. Damaris is the author of A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, which is her newest release. Before we dive into our conversation, here are just a few reminders for you. Everything we talk about on today's show can be found in the show notes. There's even a link where you can find all the books that we talked about on today's episode. Want more of the Stacks? Head over to patreon.com slash the Stacks to be part of the Stacks pack. That's our own community that gets you inside access to the show. You can join our virtual book club, get the inside scoop and a lot more. So head over to patreon.com slash the Stacks and check it out. Patreon is spelled dot com slash the Stacks. Before we dive in, make sure that you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you get your podcasts and that you leave us a rating and a review. It goes a long way to helping this show reach new audiences. All right, now it's time for you all to meet the wonderful Damaris Hill. All right, everybody, we are here today with our guest, writer and scholar Dr. Damaris B. Hill. Damaris' newest book is entitled A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, and it's a collection of poems about incarcerated black women. Damaris, welcome to The Stacks. Thank you for inviting me to The Stacks, Tracy. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited that you're here. Um, We're just going to dive in. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, like kind of maybe where you come from and maybe how you came to
1: writing? I don't know.
0: Or just anything.
1: (laughs) Uh, That's a pretty interesting story. So um, I've lived... Mostly um, on the East Coast, but I have lived in the Midwest at different times in my life. My father is an AME minister. So it's my grandfather and my mother and lots of people in my family. Um, I'm kind of Christian plus. Okay. I'll make it to heaven. I'm just taking the scenic route got type it, of thing. It. Perfect. But we've lived all over as a result of that because on average, a Methodist minister moves about every two years. Wow. Well. Um, I started writing, okay, I want to start earlier than that. I started writing songs, like I would hear, so when we lived in Xenia, Ohio, and my father was at this church called United African Methodist Church um, outside of Wilberforce near Yellow Springs and Dayton and those types of places, um, where we lived, the parsonage was not too far from the church. So I could hear like choir rehearsals and things. Mm. And I would try to write songs to that. But I, I wasn't very good at spelling. And so then I asked my parents, could could I learn music? And um they got me a highly trained classical musician that was at least a hundred and four. <laughs> So I definitely Aren't had. They, always, <laughs> they are always, always, always. So I, my music teacher when I was five or six is this highly respectable, classical, highly trained musician in the Midwest that surely knew Alice Dunbar Nelson by first name <laughs> and had absolute disdain for all blues women, whom are my descendants. Right, right. <laughs> Um. So those l- lessons lasted about. I-, I think we only lasted about three lessons. Okay. Like, I just couldn't do it anymore. And then from there, I just tried other art. Like, I would, you know, everything that I would try creative, my parents would be like, "Oh, artist, I poor," hmm. and they would like pass me an engineering. What book. did they want you to be? Um, I think they wanted to be, wanted me to be something in the sciences, okay. but the real. Key to this is what I didn't know until I was in my thirties is that my grandmother was diagnosed schizophrenic, Hmm. but my father's generation and his sisters, none of them were diagnosed with the disease, but all of them thought the disease would show up in one of her five grandchildren. Hmm. And me being an imaginative, creative little Hmm. girl probably scared the living Uh daylights uh out of everyone in my family. So rather than articulating the fear, they would just say, "Oh no, the world has enough artists. Artists die poor. Like you don't want that."
0: That's so interesting because they were trying to dissuade you without like freaking you out,
1: right? Like again, like I had a son of my own before I even found out. Wow, what was going on? Wow,
0: that's amazing. So. You came to writing just through being a creative, exploring all arts aside from classical music by right. elderly teachers. But
1: but really, I mean, not that I didn't have a, an acumen for narrative, but this was an art that I could do, that I didn't have to beg for supplies, mm-hmm. that I didn't have to face the rejection of my parents mm-hmm. telling me that artists die poor, mm-hmm. that I didn't have to go into some explicit strategy or advocating. Right. For these artistic supplies. Right. Like it was easier to get toys, Legos, Barbies, clothes. It was easier to get any of those things. Right. Than
0: to get like a dance shoe or something. Or right. Something or create, or right. A paintbrush. Or...
1: Right. Like I need a whole paint set. Right. You know, it's like, what do you, what do you need it? What right. do you need that
0: for? Because they were like, no, 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 don't go
1: down this path. Right. That's like, so interesting. <laughs> like you already have paints in there. Right. Right.
0: right. I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, but yeah. I just want to just. Kind of foreshadow. Next week, we're talking about Beloved, and I already (laughs) feel like this is connected. Yeah, very much so. Like the history, family history, trauma, fear, absolutely, anxiety, all of that, absolutely, intergenerational. Right. I mean, I next
1: week. (laughs) Right, and I open up the book with that poem about my grandmother. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know at the time that my grandmother. You know, when she grew up, she was a voracious reader. She was named after Harriet Beecher Stowe. Mm. Out of her brothers and sisters that all graduated from college, they all say that she was the smartest. Hmm. She wanted to be a librarian. Like, I didn't know any of these things growing up. So me exhibiting all of these things. Right. Right. Generated. But
0: they they knew. They knew. They knew.
1: That's so interesting. Generated an anxiety, right?
0: Yeah. Wow. Wow. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting. And that you didn't find out till you were...
1: In my thirties. My aunt told me. Like, my my parents would have never told me. So then I had to like really question because uh, my parents were sending me to her house every summer for months. Hmm. And what I grew up, and this is a romantic story, but I grew up watching my grandfather serve my grandmother breakfast in bed every day. Mm. I thought this is what you wanted out of life. Mm-hmm. I did not know that he was mashing up prescriptions Wow! in her coffee. Mm. And it was really that type of labor, maybe a labor of love for us as grandchildren, but it wasn't what I thought I was looking at. Right. That's so interesting.
0: Okay. So we're going to fast forward <laughs> yeah. a little bit. Please. You then go on to become a writer mm-hmm. and a scholar. Mm-hmm. You are what I like to call a double doctor. Uh-huh. <laughs> Two PhDs, mm-hmm. which is like pretty major. And you write not only poetry, but also nonfiction. And I've heard from a birdie that you're working on your novel. Yes. So that would make you a triple threat, right? My
1: PhD is in fiction. Oh, it is? Yeah. Oh,
0: right. English creative <laughs> writing. I knew that.
1: No, but it, it was an Specifically emphasis fiction. On, on fiction. Oh wow. But is will this be your first book of fiction? Well, this is, well, this is my first creative book. So I have a collection of historical essays. Right. But this is my first creative book. The
0: poetry. I mean, the The next book. The poetry. Because you're working on something, a novel, right? I
1: am working on a novel about girls that went to prison. And, and that book is just as queer as this one. Great. (laughs) And, and I call it My Little Twelve Headed Monster. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty wild. Um, one person that read it said that they were gobbling it up. The first 200 pages, but the last 100 pages made them tired. Ooh. And I was like, yeah, because it's a video game on paper, baby. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited for this book. Okay.
0: But let's talk about A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing. Yes. It's a collection of poetry, but it also is... I mean, I don't even know how to explain how it functions, but basically you have this fantastic introduction where you, you know, kind of call the spirits of, you know, your family and a lot of the women in the book, in addition yeah. to men and women who have been killed by police and et cetera, et cetera. And then we kind of dive into these sections. It's five
1: sections. Well, it's I think it's more like seven, but it's, it's kind of functions as five. Yeah. And, and then
0: we talk about um, incarcerated women throughout the book and- with most of the poems and the sections, there's kind of like a prose introduction to each person. Yes. And so it's kind of a mix of, a, it's not just a straight book of poems. Like it has a historical context that you're mm-hmm. giving to these poems and kind of like placing them in relationship to the world that maybe your reader will will know or will ha- be able to reference, mm-hmm. which I found wonderful. Um I, it was it allowed me a little bit of freedom as a reader to understand where you were coming from or to or to see something in a way that I hadn't thought about it mm-hmm. through your poetry, which is beautiful. Thank you so much. Um and there is a question in this. Okay. There is a question. There's already like three questions. I know. Left. It's I I sometimes struggle with questions. I don't know why. I'm it's so weird. It. Uh, but I sometimes I'm like talky talky talky. and then I'm like there should be a question on a podcast, but should is a silly word. So how did you come to the idea of combining the poetry with the nonfiction introductions for
1: them? Okay. So I do want to admit, first of all, that some of the things that you appreciate in the structure, like um, the the opening pages, that was definitely encouraged by my editor mm. and my agent. Um, and I was very resistant to that at the time. Um, but I did it. Why were you resistant me. to it? You know, I think as writers sometimes, like writing is like the art of burlesque. Mm -hmm. And I feel like nonfiction is just like a straight striptease. Mm. And I don't know if I was ready. To like show that much. Yeah, to be bare and to show my pain in that way. Mm. Because I actually wrote that introduction after everything else was complete. And the last chapter in the book that's about my son and his struggles, uh, And really the extended violences of the Black Lives Matter era, those things were not initially in the book. Wow. Yeah. And they came to the book late. Also, initially the way I structured the book is that the poems and the archives, the reclaiming of the archives... Uh, was all one section and then all of the historical references were a lot shorter okay. and they were like kind of in the back as footnotes. Oh. And then, um, my editor was like, no, we kind of need to move that because the only problem is we keep flipping back and forth. Yeah. So even though I made it a point to know these women intimately, I did have to think about that the reader did not have that opportunity. Right to know right. these women intimately. And so they might need some support totally in in meeting these women. I, okay. So let me go back because mm-hmm. that was not what you asked.
0: No, but I that's super interesting just to hear. I'm, I do have another question that's related to that. So maybe mm-hmm. we'll do this, and then we'll go back. But my question that's related to that is how do you put together a book of poetry? Okay. Literally not so much figuratively like putting it all to not like literally literally Mm -hmm. binding it but like how did you order it structure it how does it come to you and how do you because i'm assuming it doesn't all come to you in this order
1: no so for this book i want to say number one that um this is aligned with the theories of uh Ruth Nicole Brown and Dr. Shamara Kawachi that when they talk about black girlhood genius, um they help me to put language and purpose behind something that I was already doing. And what I try to do is to bring my whole self into my art and into my academic spaces and uh, kind of coming of age outside of New York City. Um, as hip hop is developing, my and house music, I don't want to leave house music out because that's a very important thing for me. Those were, those were features and fixtures in my black girlhood. So, really, what's happening in the book is what we're looking at is, is a type of literary remix where I'm sampling the archives, I'm sampling history, and I'm laying my lyrics on top. right? Right. So, it's important to think about that, but also. My writing process is very messy and requires a lot of editing. So I kind of say that I vomit on the page. Hmm. And so what this is, is this is a fraction, like maybe less than a third of the poems that I originally envisioned in my first manuscript. This is my third first manuscript. (laughs) Okay. So I had a main script in 2003. I went back and revised it and made it something different in 2012. And of course I had a lot, many more experimental types of poems in there that were kind of wigging people out, but Mm -hmm. you know, I'm about it. I love it. And then I had a mentor at that time, um, Chris Abani, who was also on my, dissertation committee um now professor at northwestern of creative writing he read that second first poetry manuscript and he was like which was placing let mm-hmm. me be clear it was like getting recognition or placing with like copper canyon like i was rising to the top right. um crab orchard review i was a semi-finalist and he was like oh you're not getting the prize because this is really three books And at that time in 2012, I kind of like sucked my teeth and rolled my eyes. Mm -hmm. I didn't say anything to him because he's brilliant. Right. Right. And I know better than to discredit what he's saying. Right. Right. But I was angry because it meant that I had so much more work to do. That's like thinking you have a poetry manuscript and somebody's telling you, no, you have three and you need to go ahead and finish these three. Right, and but uh, the good news
0: is that you have two more waiting <laughs> for you. You're like kind of halfway there, right? I'm
1: kind of halfway <laughs> there, right? And so, um, I return to the novel that I'm working on. I, I acquire a great agent, Charlotte Sheedy. Charlotte Sheedy accepts me. She reads my fiction. A year later, we have a meeting in her office, and she finds out that I write poetry and nonfiction. Hmm. She reads the poetry that day, and says to me your poetry is coming out first. She calls me on the phone. She's like, "Damaris, your poetry is coming out first. And I'm like, okay, this lady is crazy because poetry cannot pay off my student loans. Mm. This novel can sell. And then we'll come back to the love of poems, right? And then she hangs up and she calls me right back. She's like, yeah, but this is not one book. It's two. Hmm. So in my mind, I say, no, it's really three. (laughs) But then at that point, I was ready for the work which right. was 2 years later. Right. But if Chris Abani hadn't said it to me, I might have fought her about it. Right. It was like already in your head. It was already in my head and I was like she's right.
0: So is that how you generally work like you needs like you like to have an outside person kind of like to help guide you or do you feel like I mean, that's how I like to work. Like I'll make a bunch of stuff and then someone will be like, Oh, a little feedback and then I'll be like, Oh my god, I figured it out. But like yeah. that outside person
1: Well, I think those outside people are very helpful because I do a lot of work in my head mm-hmm. and I'm um you know, writing scholarship, fiction, poetry, and sometimes like, you know, this nonfiction thing. And I say thing because I'm trying to like hybrid my scholarship and nonfiction right now, create this kind of genre that's Mm. doing that. It's kind of roguish genre that's doing that. But for me, I can be so caught up in the task of finishing it. Mm -hmm. And then I also harbor a lot of shame and insecurity about my writing. Mm. I do not easily show my writing.
0: That's so interesting.
1: It's the most insecure part of my life still. I told you a little bit about my childhood. Mm -hmm. It is still... The most insecure part of my life. How
0: do you deal with it? Because, like, you know, your book is out in the world and people have read it. Like, I know you're aware of it. I have
1: a lot of, <laughs> of anxiety about it. Do you? What is,
0: I, I, I'm not to be too personal, you can tell no, me to shut I, up, but I'm sure other people deal with this too. What is it about having your writing out that gives you the anxiety? Or, like, what is it?
1: I still look at poems and I want to change them. That's one. Mm. I don't think that they're finished all the time. Or I think differently about them and I want to change them. That's one. Two, it's a real intimacy with yourself, um, and by extension, the world. When you're writing something, so you get ten years of incubation or more with this piece, and then it's all of a sudden like you have this brand new amoeba that you're just exposing to the world, and you're hoping it's going to make it mm. right. It's like like,
0: you, it, like comes out of you. It has to like be its own thing, right?
1: Or it's like you know you are the shell of this egg, Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden, it enters the poetry world, the shell is taken away. Right. Now this egg is just there. Right. Right.
0: But part of it is also that it doesn't, while it might exist, it doesn't really fully exist until someone else has read it, right?
1: Yeah. So Kafka and I don't care about that. (laughs) Another surrealist, yeah. Kafka and yeah. I, yeah. are less concerned about that. Right, We're telling you it's not done. Right. 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 And so even before <sighs> this book, like my one of my friends, Christy Cartwright, I remember she came over to my house and she's uh, a writer from the Bahamas. And when her book comes out, it's going to be absolutely brilliant. Mm. Um, but she came over to my house one Thanksgiving and she just started pulling things out of the file. She was like, this is done. This is done. This is done. This is done. Like, stop harboring this stuff. Send okay. it out, right? So yeah, I'm really weak at, at sending things out, right. and probably if I didn't have an agent, I don't, I don't know. Hmm, that's interesting.
0: So we had a guest on the podcast a while back. Um, he's a children's book author, and so you know, a lot of children's book authors they go and they talk to kids and et cetera. His name's Jesse Bird. He's fantastic. He is just he's just a lover. I just love him. Anyways, he said something at the end of the episode that has stuck with me, which was that you've got to go do your thing and you have to think of it as a public service because imagine how many people would be uninspired if, or would be left unfulfilled if Michael Jordan had never played basketball or if you had never written your book of poetry. So in that feeling of like not wanting to let it go, you're, you're being selfish with like your greatness and your thing. And I just, ever since he said that I've thought about that a lot of like, I might be insecure, but what am I keeping from others? Like my work is a service. And I just thought that was really nice.
1: Okay. I'll start to look at my work as a service, but I, I'm, it's a crazy, it's a crazy relationship because I'm right. still trying to figure out, you know, I, I can't figure out the external value of my work, Hmm. but maybe that's not for you.
0: Maybe that's for us.
1: Yes. Maybe and you just for do the, the agent. Yeah. Right? It's
0: for the agent. It's for the reader. And the reader and the people who are consuming it and who are inspired by you. Right.
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: I don't know if that helps, but Maybe not. <laughs> well, we'll move off that. Um, okay. So there. this is like a real – I'm going to make you be a teacher for a moment. Okay. Because you do that. Yeah, I do that. You do that. So in your book, you talk about – and I might be saying this wrong – ecfarsis? Yes. And I Googled it, mm-hmm. and I tried to look it up. And I want you to explain what it is because I don't know that I understood it. And I want you to explain how it functions in your book because it comes up a few times in mm-hmm. the book.
1: Well, usually what we talk about when we talk about, um, I, I say ekphrasis, but I might be pronouncing I don't it know. wrong. Um, <laughs> but when we talk about it, it's, it's like poetry inspired by art, right? right? But because I don't really believe in categories, genres, races in that type of way, right? I believe all of these, all of these things are limiting um, and they limit the complexity of human life. But I also believe it when it comes to art. And so instead of uh, my work strictly relying on visual art, sometimes people can do some like scientific research and it's really a piece of art. Mm. Like um, I feel that way about theories about dark matter. I feel that way about string theory in, in physics. And I feel that way about the work of Callie Gross. Um, in her book, Colored Amazons. And she's a historian slash anthropologist slash sociologist slash all things complex and great um, considering Black female intellectual history. And when I read um, her book, Colored Amazons, I closed the book and I immediately started writing poems Hmm. about the case studies. Because it was the first time that I had read case studies that were done so humanely that didn't reduce the woman to um the subjugated status of an object. Hmm. And I was moved instantly. And so there were really like forty poems, but only uh sixteen of them are in the book.
0: Oh wow. So you went you revised. Yes. You did your favorite thing.
1: Yes. So any anybody that's not in the book, um, they're only not in the book because I think the poem wasn't good enough. Interesting, Not because they didn't deserve to be there.
0: Right. And do you find that that's how you come to your poetry often that you have to be inspired or can you sit down and just write just, or can you be commissioned to write something or do you feel like it has to come from like that impulse?
1: I can be commissioned to write something, but I've always been the type of person where you can set an expectation, but you can't show me how to do it. Okay. And so even when I'm writing the poem, even if there's a designated um, subject matter, or let's say there's an expectation, my orientation to the poem um, is always unexpected. It always does something that I didn't. Mm Mm-hmm intend for it to do. It becomes its own thing. My job is to let it become its own thing with, without editing it out. It's kind of like putting a wildflower flower in a vase. Mm. You risk losing the beauty. Right. It's such a good analogy. <laughs> right. And so writing towards an expectation, right, or a certain goal is like taking this wildflower and putting it in a vase. And if it's not cut and 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 positioned right, mm-hmm. you, you lose the beauty of it because you've already reduced it, you Right? Know? Yeah. Okay. We're going to start
0: taking care of your health. Isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG one every day. No exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. And it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com/cashback debit. Discover Bank Member FDIC. to transition a little bit more to your reading tastes, but before we do that, we have a little segment on here. It's called Ask the Stacks. So someone's written in to us for a book recommendation, and we have to come up with what we think fits what they're looking for. Okay. Um, it's pretty this this one this week is like pretty open. It's not okay. super specific, so don't worry. So it comes from Casey Bridges, and here's what she says. My favorite genres are fantasy and YA, bonus points for a diverse cast of characters. I also like plain old literary fiction, especially if it's an intergenerational story. I would like to read more nonfiction. I almost always enjoy memoirs and personal essay style books, but I rarely think to search them out on my own as I gravitate first towards fiction. Some of her favorite books are Sawkill Saw Girls, The Great Believers, The Fifth Season, Pachinko, and Heavy. So that's what she sent us. Basically, we can do anything we want because she gave us so many options. Um, I, I'll start so you have a second to think. Okay. I came up with three books that I thought might fit Casey's taste. So the first one is If You Leave Me by Crystal Hanakim. It's an inter- intergenerational story about... Uh, Korea during the Korean War. It's told from five perspectives. It covers about 25 years. We did it on the podcast, Casey. I don't know if you remember or if you were able to read it, but it's a fantastic book and it kind of covers that literary fiction intergenerational. I also picked one of my favorite memoirs. It's called Jesus Land by Julia Shears. It is a memoir about a woman whose family, she's a white woman whose family adopts two black sons in Indiana and sends all three of them to Jesus camp. And it is dark and it is sad and it is going to gut you, but it is an amazing book. I read it over 10 years ago and I still think about it regularly. And then my third one is, is a little bit not none of the things you said, but kind of all of the things you said, which is Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand. And it's the book about Louis Zamperini, the runner who becomes a prisoner of war during World War II. And it is his own intergenerational story. So it's his own story. It covers a lot of years. Um, it's nonfiction and it kind of reads like fiction. It's pretty fantastic. It's also a book I like to recommend to people who don't love nonfiction because they're just not reading the right nonfiction. Um, so it's a good intro to nonfiction if you're feeling like you want to test the waters there. So those are mine. Damaris, did you come up with anything that
1: fits? Not nonfiction. It doesn't uh, have to be. She okay. gave
0: literary fiction and YA and science Great. fiction. She gave all sorts of stuff.
1: So I'm thinking about the intersections of what was first described um, with the exception of nonfiction. And I'm thinking... She would love to read something by Nola Hopkins, Hopkinson, excuse me. And, um, she's initially from, um, or she's from Jamaica. She's a Caribbean American writer, but it's very surrealist. It has elements of, uh, I would say sci-fi, speculative, uh, fiction. And I think it'll take her places. And that's what she wants, right? These experiences that, um, still, kind of center on understanding the specificity of identity and negotiating power, but in a context that is less familiar. Right. And so she's good, but I also think another person that she'd be very interested in is Patricia Powell and specifically the Pagoda, a novel. Um, And this is also a Caribbean American writer, but this is a Caribbean American writer who, um, does a lot of play on identity, including um, gender. Mm. And so it creates, I think, the fluidity and the accuracy of personhood without the reductive markers of identity that are familiar in standard literary writing.
0: Nice.
1: Right. And so that's really, I think, what people are looking for when they start to read science fiction mm-hmm. is that they want to imagine a space that doesn't duplicate the, um, I would say, I don't want to say negative, but doesn't duplicate the somewhat disappointing aspects of life. Mm. And, you know, there's some science fiction that'll give you a new setting, but will still be very prescriptive about the expectations of identity markers such as race, gender and class. Mm-hmm. And there are others that really um, add the dimension of humanity into an alternate space. And I think uh, Nola Hopkinson and Patricia uh, Powell both do that.
0: I want to be your student. (laughs) I feel like I'm just really excited to be sitting across (laughs) from you. Damaris, we're going to start with my favorite. Well, that's my favorite. It's just one I always start with. What are two books you love and one book you hate?
1: Okay, so two books that I love are The Known World okay. by Edward P. Jones okay. and, of course, Beloved mm. by Toni Morrison.
0: I'm very excited to talk about Beloved because I have a lot of feelings and I think that they're not the quote unquote right ones. Mm. So we'll save Beloved.
1: There are no right or wrong feelings. Yeah, I know. I
0: know. But I have feelings. <laughs> <laughs> I have
1: feelings too. I, have,
0: I just have thoughts. I have questions and I can't wait to talk about it. Actually, I'll save it. I'll save it. I'll save it. Yeah. Okay. And then what's the book that you hate or a book that you hate?
1: Oh, a lot of people are going to be mad at me. Oh, I love when it's these kinds. Okay, go. Listen, I couldn't even make it through The Alchemist.
0: Oh, I hate The Alchemist. Right. It's my, one of my brother's favorite books. And him and all his friends are like, oh, have you read The Alchemist? Uh, it's just like in The exactly. Alchemist. And I'm like, what happened in The Alchemist? Nothing. It was a waste of my time.
1: Listen, I got that, I, I got all of that when I was sitting in Sunday school. Bye. <laughs> I, I, it, and it was far more interesting in the Bible.
0: Well, I don't, I have not read the Bible, nor have I read, (laughs) oh, I have read The Alchemist and I've read parts of the Bible, but I didn't need either, honestly. (laughs) Right, right, right. Like, I'm just like, okay, good, bye. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, what's the last great book
1: that you read? Okay, so I would say The Book of Light by Lucille Clifton. And right now I'm like kind of writing this, this paper, and it's a poetry book. I'm writing a paper on it. Um. But it's it's one of my favorite books. It, it it was written in like 1993, but I return to it all the time. Mm.
0: Do you do that often with books? Return?
1: I do, I do. Like I can't I can't get enough of Beloved. I can't mm. get enough of The Known World. Um, I can't get enough of Sonny's Blues. I can't get enough of Tony Cade Bambara's stories. So sometimes I often return, and even at the expense of not having time to explore some some of my friends and writers that are out now. Mm. But I am somebody that that'll return to my friends in those pages, mm-hmm. right? They're not characters; they are my friends in those pages.
0: Oh, I love that. What are some things that you're looking forward to reading?
1: Um. Okay, so I have a couple of things that I okay. want to read. Yeah. Um. Roxane Gay's Dangerous Women. Mm. I have not read that, and you know I'll admit that I have far less time to read uh, than I would like to have. Right. Um. Starlight and Era by Ramika uh okay, I'm gonna say this wrong, Binging Risher. Okay. And that's also a book of poems. Um And I was a revolutionary by one of my co workers. I'd really need to get more into that. Okay. book. And what are you reading right now? Okay, so I'm reading the Book of Light. Um I also recently finished and I'm still thinking about um this Book called Bessie's Resurrection by Kimberly A. Collins and that's a book of poems Um, at my house I have the Apology by Eve Ensler Mm. who wrote the Vagina Monologue so I'm looking forward to getting into that Um, let's see I started but I haven't had a chance to finish yet because of my crazy schedule but Reclaiming Our Space by Feminista Jones so there are always a lot of uh, books around that I want to get into and I'm I'm just trying to figure it out now <laughs> and but you th- can read multiple at once. I can. I can. I can like go in and out of books. Okay. Um I'm not um I used to be someone that was like kind of stringent and was like no I have to finish this book first and I still have those impulses. But I think that in some ways does dishonor to my humanity and my creative person. Interesting. To force myself into a border and a boundary. Hmm. See, so
0: I'm a one book pony is what I call it. Oh. I got to do one at a time.
1: But I think You're a careful reader. That's so nice. Yeah, I
0: am. I don't know if I think of it as careful. I think that what ends up happening is that I end up just reading what I want to read anyways. So if I pick up a book and then I pick up another one, whichever one I liked more or I'm more into, I'll just finish okay. before I move off.
1: So you're probably also one of these people that I find so peculiar. Okay, What? <laughs> a person that will come in the house and just put their iPod on random or put their playlist on random.
0: I do put my playlist on random. Right. But I, yeah, it's gotta be the playlist. Like I won't put my whole thing on random, but because I'll put like a mood on random.
1: Right. You yeah. put a mood on random. Cause you're like, oh, I like all of the songs that are, that yeah. are saved in my library. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. I am not one of those people. So you go through a playlist,
0: you will curate it before you play it or you'll yes. just put an album on.
1: Either one. Okay. All of my playlists huh. are curated. Wow. I'm, I listen about to, to, to vinyl.
0: Okay. So do I do that.
1: And I'm very specific about like coming in and playing a certain record. Mm.
0: Yeah. I'm more of like a mood listener. But so for my other job, I teach fitness and I have to make playlists that are very curated. They have to be 43 minutes. Exactly. They have to do this. They have to do that. And so when I'm not doing that... I just will put on, like, I have playlists that are just five of my favorite artists and I'll just put all their music in a place and click shuffle.
1: Yeah, that'll make me, that'll make me. Really? Yeah, that, that'll that just, I think in some ways that would, um, that might create an energy that's unpredictable for me. Interesting. I've literally never even
0: thought about that, that I do that. I didn't even know people didn't do that.
1: Right. <laughs> so, but in the same, it's different for my reading, yeah. right? In my reading, it's like, whatever I pick up, I'll love mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't have like am like a mood or a set right right yeah,
0: yeah, i just i just, yeah, I feel like I'm like cheating or something if i it's not cheating, <laughs> but it's just like if i if I pick up two books and I like one more, I'm just gonna keep reading the one I like more, right, so that's why I read one at a time.
1: well, I do have to admit this, and this is like so horrible to admit, okay, live on a podcast, <laughs> poetry books get twenty pages, fiction and prose works get they get ten
0: really? if you don't have me.
1: Ten By that 10th page, then we're done.
0: <gasps> okay. Let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. Do you ever pick up a book because someone says to you, Damaris, you have to read this book. It's amazing. Absolutely. And they're like, the ending is insane. What do you do in that situation if the first 10 don't grab you?
1: Ask them about the ending. Just to have them tell you? Just have them tell me. Okay. <laughs> I'm like totally spoiled. Okay. I'm spoiled by Gabrielle Garcia Marquez. hmm I'm spoiled of course by Toni Morrison and and well James Baldwin can be kind of slow sometimes. He can be slow. He can be slow.
0: See, I found I find Toni Morrison to be slow in the beginning. I have a hard time tapping into her.
1: We are going to get on that. I can't wait.
0: Oh my god, I'm so This is
1: Yeah, we <laughs> we are going to get to it. Um Sherman Alexie. You mm-hmm. know, I'm spoiled. Interesting. There's so much uh listen. I've never been able to finish it, but even even um Chris Abani's Song for Night. Oh my gosh. There's so much good literature,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Mm-hmm. That um, you got to be careful what you're spending your eyes on That's and your time true. on. That's
0: true. My Where I struggle, and I wonder if you have this, is that sometimes when I pick up a book, depending on what I've read before, it might be very dissonant. And it's hard yes. in the first 10 pages to get into the author's voice at no fault of the author.
1: Right. So I would recommend like if you're coming off of his, uh, like a heavy historical book mm-hmm. or a memoir to read flash fiction or very short stories before you move into your next book. Because mm. that way you're kind of resetting your palate. smart. Yeah. Because
0: cause sometimes it's like I'll pick
1: up something and
0: then I'm like, uh, I can't do this. Or like, this is terrible. But it's not really. It's just me because my brain is in like a totally different place.
1: Yeah. So you uh, you have to reset your palate.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm going to, I'm trying to read more poetry, which is really yeah. hard for me, but I, I, lo- a month ago when everyone's listening, mm-hmm. I had, um, Gabrielle Seville on and we talked about, um, I
1: love her. Isn't, she's she so great? Yeah. Did she tell you that we we met yes. before? Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah she yeah. told me
0: all about you. I, yeah. well, cause I said I was having you on and she's like, "I'm oh gonna have to text her. She's great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I had Gabrielle on and we talked about poetry and she kind of did like a crash course for myself and our listeners about like why we're not terrible people if we don't quote unquote, get it. And we talked all about that stuff. Mm -hmm. And ever since that conversation, I've been like, I need to be sneaking more poetry in because it's a muscle too. Just like for me, nonfiction is my Mm go-to. And so when I read fiction, I struggle a lot sometimes, but I've been reading more and I'm getting better at it. Mm -hmm. And I think for other people, it's the opposite. Nonfiction for them is really a struggle. And I think poetry is its own different... Thing that needs its own muscles, and that yes. it's not an it's not enough for me as a reader and a quote unquote professional reader to say that I don't like something because I'm new to it, and so that's a, like a thing that I'm working on. So I'm trying to sneak some poems in between books mm-hmm. just to practice.
1: Yeah, and it helps. It does <laughs> help. But I also want to say, like in terms of um, even from the writer's perspective, as, as writing different um, genres. I tell people that writing fiction is like painting. It's all about what you add to the canvas. Mm -hmm. Oh, but poetry is all about what you leave behind. Mm. A poem is all about what you take away. Mm -hmm. So Mm. it's like working in negative space. So they are very kind of divergent approaches. Right. That's interesting
0: sometimes. You have all these nuggets. I like this. These juicy little nuggets. <laughs> I'm talking
1: to you.
0: Tracy. Okay. <laughs> okay, let's go. How about, what's a book that you like to recommend to people?
1: I like to recommend a few books, but I, I often recommend, let's see, Tody K. Babar's stories to my student. Well, to everybody. Um, but particularly to my students, um, if I'm talking to like my parents and my aunties and things like that, I recommend The Known World. If I'm talking to an adventurous reader, I always go with Marquez and then I tell them, I ask them, like, what kind of time do you have? Mm-hmm. If they have a lot of time, I'll say, OK, go for 100 years to solitude. If they're a, like a kind of a novice reader, I, I might um, say, "Say which is my favorite novella by Gabriel Garcia Marquez on love and other demons mm. that opens up when they removed the top of the casket. There were 22 there was 22 feet of red hair mm-hmm. spilling from the casket. <gasps> <laughs> right. And so then like you know that opens up with the type of of gothic lore and gore but it's also very imaginative. What person would have 22 feet of red hair? You know. Someone exciting. Right, someone exciting, <laughs> right? A 12-year-old that falls in love with a priest. <laughs> Whoa, is that what the book's about? Yes. Oh my gosh, I don't know it. Um <laughs> it's very interesting.
0: What's the last really good book someone recommended to you?
1: Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go like really old school because okay. this isn't this isn't this isn't I don't think this is accurate in terms of time, but it's accurate in terms of memory. So actually, 100 Years of Solitude not only was recommended to me, but was given to me by one of my co-workers mm. um, in the early 2000s. And at that time, like, let me be clear, I was reading an excessive amount of Latino literature, but kind of stayed away from Marquez because I thought it was just gibberish. Hmm. Like this guy can't be that good. You don't know what you're talking about. Mm. I'm reading these Latino women. They are feeding me. This is what I love. And, um, and also uh, Latino poetry, because unlike English, English, the sounds work so much better. Mm-hmm. So I was when I was an emergent when I was first writing poetry, not even an emergent poet, but when I was first writing poetry, I was very frustrated by English because English is like German and Latin, and it doesn't it doesn't do the sound, mm-hmm. the music mm-hmm. that Latino poetry does. Mm. And so a friend that I was working with bought me the book, and it's so funny I can't remember his name right now. And the book sat around for like two years. Mm-hmm. And then one day I finally had enough time and I picked it up. And then I found myself in the last 20 pages. And this is what I do for all books that I love, poetry or fiction. And this is how I'm a balanced person. (laughs) If I love your book, I will read the last 20 pages three times each before I move on to the next page. Wow. Because I don't want the book to end.
0: See, I'll do... Three times and then turn the page. Yes. Okay. So it's not like you read the, you don't go through it three times. All right. No,
1: no, I'm savoring getting to the end. Right. So, you know, you can be cut off quickly, but you can also be cherished. That's right. That's so good. Well, that's the balance. Yeah, totally. Where do you
0: like to read? Like what's your ideal reading setup? Usually in the bed. Okay. But, um. Morning, night, night with a cup of coffee, with a snack, and socks, and blankies. Like, take me there.
1: Usually in the bed, with I have exceptionally soft sheets.
0: Okay.
1: I'm, I'm somebody who likes a nice bed, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so in the bed, probably with a nice green tea latte next to me, mm. or, um, you know, a 20-ounce mug of green tea, with some honey, a little bit of turmeric, a little bit of citrus. If it's not a latte, you know, it's a whole mood. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then I'm like, you know, I usually kind of tuck my legs back. Like, you know, either I'm sitting on them or some some way like that. And I read like that and I have to have a book light because, um, you know, like you nestle on one arm and then you get tired. Mm-hmm. So you have to flip to the mm-hmm. other arm. And so even though I, I have... um Next to my bed, I have like a lamp that's like for the room. And then I have a floor lamp that has a halogen bulb that kind of acts like a book lamp Mm -hmm. if I want more light. And then I usually clamp a book light onto the book, too. So it can be kind of dark in the room, but I still have plenty of of light for my pages. That's good. You really took a sorry like that. And I enjoy a book, a bound book. I like the smells. I like the texture of the pages. I will read on an e-reader, but I don't like it. Mm -mm.
0: Mm -mm. I don't like it either. I did it for the first time ever a few weeks ago. Mm. I survived. Yes. But I'm back with my books. I was on a trip, so.
1: I know. It's kind of easier when you're traveling to do the e-reader thing Mm -hmm. because you don't have as much weight. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes, like if I'm traveling with books, I can have like 10 pounds worth of books. I'm with you. How do you organize your books? I organize my books by genre. Genre. Favorite people up front. Mm-hmm. Or favorite people at the ends. Do you have any favorite bookstores? Um, I will say the Wild Fig bookstore in Lexington, Kentucky. Um when I went to bookmarks in North Carolina, it was so interesting. Um, the strand is always interesting. Mm-hmm. No, I'm more or less I I have books that I I like libraries better than okay. than bookstores. That's the real honest truth. Yeah. So like I'll be better it'll be better for me to tell you like libraries that I like. You know. Tell me. Um okay, so of course living in Baltimore for such a long time. I love the Enoch Pratt Public Library. There are two rooms that I love. There's the African American room which started in like 2004 and it's um it's nice. But the best room in the Pratt library is the humanities area, so it's like up on the third floor and it's like all the way to the right, and there are like columns mm. and there's like ornate mosaic and it's like this whole judge mm-hmm. so there's um there's and it's very open in that space, so there's um a little bit of space they they probably house about. 15 um, computers there. Because, you know, the aesthetic of a computer, as digital as I am, can take away from the aesthetic and the vibe of a room. Mm -hmm. Truly. Yes. (laughs) So, you know, they're all backlit and over in the corners. But when you get to the stacks, Mm -hmm. the stacks are narrow. Mm. They're on metal shelves. The books are all uh, gold inlay and old. Mm. And it just smells of knowledge in there. I love, I
0: love that. That's so good. You know, I love a stack, obviously.
1: Obviously. (laughs) Obviously. Okay,
0: let's talk about some specific things that books have evoked from you. What's the last book that
1: made you laugh? So, the last book that made me laugh hard. I want to go with the book that made me laugh really, really hard. Okay. So, Nikki Finney's poetry book, "The World Is Round," has in the middle eight pages of the most beautiful prose in the English language. Mm. And it's about her relationship with her grandmother. And the first four pages are simply hysterical. <laughs> and as I remember, as I was reading it, I had um a like a mentee in the house at the time and she ran upstairs. And I was living like in a brownstone then. She like ran upstairs in my house And she was like, what are you watching on television? Like, I can hear you laughing all the way downstairs. I was like, I'm reading. Mm. And then the very next four pages are the saddest pages that you ever want to read in the English language. And then I was crying hysterically.
0: Well, that was my next question.
1: (laughs) And so the piece is entitled Hurricane Beulah. Entitled what? Hurricane Beulah. Mm. And it's all about her relationship with her grandmother. It's 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 beautiful.
0: I love that. Is that the last book that made you cry or the last book that made you cry
1: hard? I think so.
0: Okay. Besides about-
1: this book that I wrote. Besides the book you wrote. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There were times I was crying. But in the reading of it or in the writing of it? In the writing of it.
0: In the reading of it, do you find joy?
1: Oh, no. No. Sometimes when I read these poems, I'm very uh, physically uncomfortable. Yeah. The first time I read the Ida B. Wells poem in its entirety, I nearly vomited on stage.
0: Really? Just like an overcoming, it overcame you.
1: It overcame me. I'm extremely empathetic, even though I pretend not to be. Mm -hmm. I'm extremely empathetic. And I purposely try to write my poems to evoke some type of physical and visceral reaction Mm -hmm. because I want the reader, if they're reading about people that are marginalized, to physically feel the discomfort of being a raced or marginalized body in society. Mm -hmm. So I try to evoke and create that for the reader. Mm -hmm. But there's no way to do it without evoking it on myself. Yeah. And so when I first read, somebody requested it. I had never read it aloud in its entirety. And somebody came to the reading. And this is in North Carolina. In Raleigh, no, in Chapel Hill. And she was like, I, I want to hear you read Ida B. Wells. And I was like, the whole thing? She was like, Yeah. And so I read it. But when I finished that two the opening two pages, yeah, and I-, I was like, Okay, I'm done. Like
0: <laughs> Wow. <sighs> um, well, what about a book that's made you angry?
1: Hmm. I don't I don't I can't think of one offhand that Would probably evoke anger, and I would like stick with it. Okay, Um, maybe, maybe like reading the Constitution. Like they're not like normal books; they're like pieces, right?
0: Well, we talk sometimes on here about the different kinds of anger with books. Like you can have anger at a book because like you think that it's bad and it's annoying to you, Mm -hmm. or you can have anger at a book because like a character is making terrible decisions and it's making you angry, or you could have anger at a book because like the contents like injustice like I one of the books that I think of that makes me really angry is medical apartheid oh absolutely like that book I was just like this is garbage this is Mm -hmm. trash treatment like I can't believe that this is the shit that people have to go through Mm -hmm. to get you know like so that like there's these different kinds of anger in Mm -hmm. the reading so for you, maybe the first time, but like, this book is garbage, I'm not going to read it, doesn't really evoke anger because you're only 10 pages in and you're like, moving on. <laughs> right.
1: Moving on. Cut my losses. Yeah,
0: exactly. I do relationships
1: the same way. You yeah. should know that. Yeah. <laughs> moving like on. This. Moving on. Next, please. Thank you, next. But I will say there has been authors that I've read their book, and this is a different type of anger, mm-hmm. but I'm ready to throw the book because I realize I'll never be that good. Mm,
0: I've heard about this from other authors before.
1: Right. So... Sometimes I'll pick up a book and... Um, Can you think of one off the yeah, top? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Sarah Ahmed's work, who's like, you know, the anti-feminist, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and she uses a lot of Black feminist theory and post theory to talk about global feminism. And in her book, Strange Encounters, which is an older book that I read probably eight, nine, ten years ago, she writes... About how feminism is just used in some ways to to promote capitalism around the world, but when I got to her chapter on like Hillary Clinton, which for like a a lack of a better word, she's reading her politics for filth, and this mm. is long before mm-hmm. like she's running for president mm. right she's reading her politics for filth, mm. and I'm like, oh my god, like. I'll never be this good. Right. Yeah. They're, they're, you know, I I read Angela Davis's work and I'm like, man, I'll I'll never be this good. I mean, I know people like I have friends that are, that are so brilliant Mm. that when I get off the phone with them, I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm wasting too much time watching Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) I need to be reading. Right. Because they're just so brilliant right um, but definitely I'll go with Sarah I won't I won't talk about any of my my writer friends because there are some people that are still living right mm-hmm. that, that that um like to to call out their names might be like to say you know other people might interpret that I don't like their writing and that's not true. No, I think you're saying that you love their writing right, but <laughs> other people that are my friends oh, I see. My, oh. right. Yeah, like I might be promoting some people over others, right? And that's not what I mean to do. But I mean, I'll say Sarah Ahmed is definitely one of those people. But there are, there are other poets where I'm like, I got to mm. learn it. But I have to learn it is a different attitude than I'm throwing this book. Mm. I'm throwing this book is like, I give up. Right. Like I surrender. I'll never right. be as good. Right. Yeah. So I do have that type of anger sometimes with people <laughs> I read. I like that kind of anger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. like
0: competitive anger.
1: And it's admiration. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's just like, it, it is It is the way. It's the same thing I was talking about when, when my mentors told me that the book was two and three books. Mm-hmm. I was angry, but I was angry because I was surrendering. Right. And that's not something I do easily.
0: easily. Right. That makes sense. Do you have a favorite book that you were assigned in school?
1: Mm-hmm. Um. Two. I I like I like The Odyssey. Okay. I really like The Odyssey. Okay. I'm still pretty obsessed with Cersei. Okay. I've written a play about Cersei. I'm really obsessed with Cersei. Okay. <laughs> um so The Odyssey is one of them. Um Paradise Lost by Milton is another.
0: Okay. Those are major books. Were those assigned to you in like high school or
1: um college probably adult college i think the odyssey came might have came out of high school like right. you know you know you have these little programs or whatever uh, you know they they say you're gifted and talented which just means you're probably a little bit more well-behaved than others right i right. don't know what that means but right. um nothing good <laughs> right you know it's a way of classifying people right what else was i encouraged to read that i liked in school I can't think of anything else at this time. That's a good answer. Oh, oh no! I think I I assigned that. Maybe okay, I... tell me what's a good book that you assigned that made you go oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, when I taught middle school, I um assigned this short story Harrison Bergeron a lot. Say it again, Harrison Bergeron. Um, and it's about this boy and his abilities and how um he's encouraged. Um, by society to normalize those abilities for the sake of society. And he kind of breaks out of that. In hindsight, I realize that that, that book is, is probably some, might be some anti rhetoric, um, mm-hmm. in terms of, uh, social equalities. But on the surface, it's interesting to think about the ways that we may police our own abilities to be accepted in society. Mm-hmm. And the type of internal struggle and negotiation that that stimulates.
0: Okay. I have just the last question for you. Okay, This one is really my favorite. I stole it okay. from, the, from the New York Times. What is a book you would require the current president of the United States to read?
1: The Diary of an ex Man. Ooh. The Autobiography of an ex man Sorry. That would be one. I would also require him again to read the Constitution. Mm-hmm. I, I think um, he he hasn't mastered that text yet. No, Mm-mm. I might require him to read your book. <laughs>
0: I don't know if he'd
1: get it though. He might miss it. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know if he'd get it or not. Let's see. I'd I'd assign him anything by Carol Anderson mm. and most anything by um, Nell Painter. And when I say mm. most anything, I would only exclude like one book.
0: Her, her one art old in art school or was
1: no no no, no i would i would have him read that too because i think that's a way of talking about black genius mm. and how this there is this need and compulsion and desire to use your intellectual abilities to help substantiate the inadequacy
0: mm-hmm
1: Of the academic culture Mm. in terms of race and gender and inequality. Mm. And now that she's done that work, she's painting, right? What if there was an opportunity for her to simultaneously have those careers? Right. Or I'm not saying that this is true of Nell Painter, but what if she had desired to paint all along, right? And actually what type of sacrifice would that have been to the intellectual community and the American um, higher education system at large? Interesting. You know? mm,
0: so good. Okay. Well, that's it for this week. We're going to be back next week. We're talking about Beloved by Toni Morrison. It's going to be a good one, I think, given I what think we've touched it. on today. Um, there will be spoilers next week. So if you haven't read the book, you have a week. You can do it. I believe in you. I do too. You'll, it, it goes by pretty quick. And, and it'll be worth it. Yeah. And it'll be worth it. Demaris, do you have anything else you want to say before we go?
1: I had a lot of fun. Thank you, Tracy.
0: I'm glad I always like to hear that. (laughs) I had a whole lot of fun. Good. All right. Well, we will see you next week and everyone else, we will see you in the Stacks. Thank you all so much for listening and thank you to Damaris Hill for being our guest. Damaris will be back next week for the Stacks Book Club discussion of Beloved by Toni Morrison. I also want to say thank you to the folks over at Bloomsbury. Remember to get your book recommendation read on air, send us an email at askingthestacks at gmail.com. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media, at thestackspod on Instagram and at thestackspod underscore on Twitter. And check out the website, thestackspodcast.com. To join The Stacks Pack and get inside access to this show, go to patreon.com slash thestacks. Make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tagirages. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas, and I will see you in the stacks.